This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us. What if your normally feminine and well-adjusted adolescent daughter suddenly announced to you that she is transgender? It is happening in an increasing number of families, which itself is a red flag, and it has led to the coining of the phrase sudden onset gender dysphoria. In other words, it's entirely likely that your daughter came to her decision not because she suffers from a mental condition, but because she's been deeply affected by pro-transgender social influences like peers and internet gurus. What is going on and what can be done to save our daughters from this really disturbing trend. We're going to talk about it today with Abigail Schreier. She is writer for the Wall Street Journal and author of the great book, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. Abigail, it's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. You bet. You first entered this world of transgender politics, I know, several years back because of the gender pronoun issue and the laws that came about in California and New York. Why did those laws alarm you at the time? What caught your attention back then that relates to what you're writing about in this book? So I'm I'm a lawyer and... um that they're just straightforwardly unconstitutional. In America, the government can't make you say anything. It can't even make you salute the flag. And our our jurisprudence is really, really clear on this. Under the First Amendment, the government can't compel speech, and the government has tried to compel speech under laws in New York and, and California, my state, where they actually assign criminal penalties for failing to use the correct gender pronouns. So I wrote about that. It's fairly straightforward. And a reader wrote to me and she said her daughter had been caught up in this and could I please take it on? She had written to many journalists and no one was interested. Yeah, exactly. Well, nobody wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And even if you have stories, <laughs> as you know well, but I mean, even if you have stories of people who have reversed their sex change operations and now denounce everything they went through with gender dysphoria, they don't even get their stories told half the time. There's a big blackout factor. That's right. When she reached out to me, you know, I'm not an investigative journalist. I was an opinion journalist, and I I tried to find an investigative journalist who would take this up, and I wasn't able to. So after three months, I got back in touch with her, and I thought, all right, let let me reach out to all the parents you're telling me about who are going through this. And, and let me hear their stories. And I did. And, and what I found was, you know, and there's, it's based on a lot of research. I did almost 200 interviews. Um, and what I found was this is a peer contagion, meaning just like anorexia and bulimia and cutting, it, spends with, it's, it, it spreads within friend groups. Girls convince themselves, girls in genuine distress convince themselves that this is the cause and they spread it uh, to their friends. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about this because one of the things you mentioned is that the experience of girlhood is different in this generation maybe than it was for many of us in our own childhoods. What is different about this generation that would cause that sort of peer contagion? 
Sure. So there are a, a number of things. First of all, the most important thing to know is that girls today spend a lot less time in person with each other and a lot more time online. The influences that matter most in their lives are, are not other girls in person. In fact, they don't get as nearly as much comfort from their friends or, or genuine, you know, deep friendship. What they get is direction and competition online. Mm-hmm. They have access to all these gurus that they follow and who influence them. And then they are constantly comparing and competing, you know, holding up their bodies against their friends, you know, doctored images online. So they feel a lot of distress. They are, they feel that they are failing as girls. They are failing as women because they're comparing themselves to an ideal they cannot measure up to. And it's causing them a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression. Well, this is interesting because all of us can say we, we went through the same sorts of things when we were adolescents. I don't measure up to Brooke Shields on the cover of Vogue or whatever it is. But we didn't resolve it by trying to change our sex. I mean, what, well, what one, is the deadly combination one, here? Right. So one thing to know is it's not Brooke Shields. It's actually the girl in your class. Her images have been doctored online, too. So you sit and you see see the girls in your own class and they look perfect because all of their issues have uh, all of their images have been face tuned. So even the girls in your class feel like you can't reach them. And the competition never ends because you hold the pictures in your pocket and they torment you all day long. And not just the pictures, the comments, people tearing apart their bodies online. You read about that. People tearing apart your body online, you read about that. It's, it really produces, in girls who are always prone to compare themselves, it produces a great amount of distress and anxiety. And now, in today's day and age, there's a solution. And that solution is you, don't, you might not be a girl at all. Maybe you're imperfectly feminine because you're really supposed to be a boy. Good grief. So so talk a little bit about how it works. If you have friends who are really moving you in that direction, are they getting it from the internet gurus first? Are they getting it from the pro-LGBT clubs at school? What is, in other words, connect the dots on how this gets to these girls. All of the above. So first of all, the thing to know that is that these transgender influences are online. They are everywhere. You don't even have to go hunting for them. They will. Many teenage sites will cue them up, and they are highly addictive, highly watchable. Um, they're very charismatic teenagers, and they promise you that the best thing that ever happened to them was a course of testosterone. Hmm. Um, they are also getting these girls a ton of gender indoctrination, ideology indoctrination in the schools, starting in kindergarten. And I explored my own school system here in California, where it is extremely radical, extremely pervasive, and it starts in kindergarten. So these girls are getting confused in schools, and the educators are really happy to embrace and celebrate them as as a new gender. Wow. Uh, Okay? And even if they express distress and are taken to a therapist for any reason, therapists are now affirming and celebrating these identities. So wherever these girls look... They are told that if they just come out of as a boy, they will get popularity, they will get celebration, and they will get shield from all the criticism and, and, and derision that attaches to being a white girl today. It's crazy. And California, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm doing this from memory, but isn't it the case now in California, if you do go to any kind of therapist, that therapist, you're not allowed to tell somebody you, you may not be the other gender or you may not be gay or something along those lines. 
That's exactly right. In 18 states, we've adopted conversion therapy laws, which purport to eliminate, you know, gay conversion therapy. But what they actually do is eliminate that plus all gender identity therapy. And the problem with that was that was always the way we treated gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria was a, you know, psychological distress in your biological sex. It began in early childhood and it overwhelmingly afflicted boys. And the way we would treat it was therapists would examine the whole child and trying to figure out what was going on, where did he get this idea that if he was a girl, he'd feel better, yeah. okay? Yeah. Now you're not even allowed to inquire, and all of a sudden, the predominant demographic in America, out of nowhere, is teenage girls with sudden dis- gender dysphoria. They claim they have gender dysphoria, even though they have no childhood history of it, and they, on the basis of their self-diagnosis, they're getting hormones and surgeries. But whatever happened to just being a tomboy? Because statistically, most of these girls or boys who have any kind of gender conflict outgrow it anyway. Right. Well, we're not allowing that anymore. There's no such thing as a tomboy in school today. In fact, they are presented with a litany of gender options. Tomboy is not one of them. Gender nonconforming is. So they may decide that they are pansexual or, you know, they, they have a whole list of options they can choose from but, or, you know, non-binary. But tomboy is not among them. Yeah. Tomboy is just not an option anymore. How many girls are actually falling for this, this peer contagion pressure to switch genders ostensibly? We don't know exactly, and the reason we don't know is that clinics don't even require a a formal diagnosis in order to get hormones and surgeries. I can tell you a couple things. In twenty between twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen, the number of gender gender surgeries on on biological females quadrupled. I can also tell you that a a decade ago we had one gender clinic in the United States. Today we have well over fifty. And, and, and I can tell you that Planned Parenthood now gives out testosterone across the country on oh, a first man. visit. Oh, man. Without even a therapist note. No therapy. Uh, unbelievable. And you know what you're talking about in this book is what is so alarming. We don't yet know the long term effects on these girls. Uh, true for boys as well. But in particular, girls, when you are engaging in things like hormone treatments or body altering surgeries, uh, it's just terrifying to think what may be coming down the line. We'll take a short pause. We'll come back with Abigail Schreier. Her book is called Irreversible Damage. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. For those of us who live in America, it may be hard to believe, but there are people in the country of Lebanon who have never heard about Jesus. That's exactly why Heart for Lebanon is there, working in the nation that's home to more than two million Syrian refugee families who have arrived there to escape civil war and terrorism. But every day, Heart for Lebanon is there, reaching out to these needy families in Jesus' name, telling them about him and providing food, Christian education, and survival essentials. And the Lord is changing their lives. Let me tell you about one of those refugees, Hanifa, who is 10 years old. She lost her mother when she was just a toddler, but Heart for Lebanon met her as they were delivering food portions to her family. With no opportunity for formal education, Hanifa wakes her father up early in the morning when Heart for Lebanon's educational fun truck is scheduled to arrive. 
Recently, during a skit about God's love, Hanifa placed her faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. And now, because her father is illiterate, she's reading the Bible to him each evening. This family, although currently living in very tough times, is slowly starting to realize the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ and the hope that only reaches them because people like you give to get the gospel to them. Your single investment of just $116 helps someone like Hanifa and her family with supplies needed to survive the next four months and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. Perhaps you could help a family like this for an entire year by joining our Hope Provider team at just $29 a month. Whatever you can do, please call now, 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner to click at JanetMefford.com. These families need immediate help. More than that, they need Jesus and they need you. Please call now. The number is 888-247-5499. That number again, 888-247-5499. Thank you. And God bless you for your generosity. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Abigail Schreier. She is a writer for the Wall Street Journal and author of a really important book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. And focusing on this issue of pure contagion, that you have all of these girls suddenly saying they're transgender, when in fact, historically, the diagnoses of gender dysphoria have been very rare, haven't they? Abigail, what is the discrepancy in the numbers? Yeah, so before we were talking about 0.01%, so one one-hundredth of 1%, which meant probably nobody you knew growing up was transgender. Right. Today, 2% of high school students now identify as transgender. So you're talking about well over a million kids, and you're talking about... Uh, um, and, and they are overwhelmingly female. We've never hmm. seen this before. Hmm. That's crazy. Well, and, and on every side, they're getting it. They're not just getting the internet stars, you know, maybe it's RuPaul, maybe it's Jazz Jennings or somebody like that. You're getting the peer group influence. You're getting the curriculum influence, maybe in schools. You're getting politicians going along with it. But what happens to these girls once they declare, I'm transgender? Do most of them go through with hormone treatments? Do most of them seek any sort of body altering surgeries? And what are some of the ramifications of these declarations? So it depends when when they start and how much influence the parent still has. So I interviewed one woman in my book who goes by Catherine Cave, and her daughter um, in seventh grade heard a school assembly in which a transgender student addressed the students, and after hearing that, she decided, oh... Um, I'm uncomfortable in my body. I've never felt perfectly female. That That's what I am, too. So she came home and announced it to her mom. Her mom tried to take it seriously, but not, not necessarily literally. But the girl um, was encouraged to make an announcement to her class. So her therapist, the girl was in therapy, and she was encouraged to make an announcement to her teacher, who changed her name and pronouns within the school, keeping it a secret from her parents. This is standard across, in many school systems across the country. They keep it as a secret from the parents. And the therapist was pushing the mother to start the kid on hormones because she, she told the mother, this is the only way to keep your daughter from suicide. And that is a common line parents will get. 
Well, that's not true, though, right? Because we continue to see even people who've gone through you know, the whole shebang where you go through the surgery, they're still depressed. They're still committing suicide in many instances. Dr. Paul McHugh from Johns Hopkins, who put a, an end to the sex change operations out there and has been criticized for it, he pointed that out. That's why he wanted those operations to stop, because they didn't actually solve the problem. Right. So what is true is that there is a high rate of depression and suicidality among trans-identified youth and and trans-identified people. What has never been proved is for this population, number one, whether gender dysphoria is the cause of suicidality. And two, what has never been proven is whether transition, medical or social transition, will will eliminate that so suicidality. So obviously there's a lot we don't know. And in fact, we have some indication that it isn't necessarily the trans the gender dysphoria that's causing the depression. It may be the other way around, that depression is the real problem and anxiety is the real problem, not the gender dysphoria. Well that would make sense because if you're talking about young girls who are increasing isolated and depressed and they're encountering all of these un, you know unattainable images of beautiful girls online that they feel they can't ever be you know there, there's got to be a factor of depression that would lead them to make such a leap in the first place that's right I mean the real story here is this is just one more manifestation of a mental health crisis that our teen girls are in. They happen today to be calling it gender dysphoria because that's what they see in the culture, and that's the explanation they give to how bad they feel inside. But we know that rates of suicide are spiking like we've never before seen in teenage girls, even in tweens. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, this is also true for self-harm, you know, for cutting, for all kinds of, you know, self-directed bad behaviors, we know that they are in a lot of distress. They're calling it gender dysphoria, but really what they're in is a a lot of pain. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, something else you mentioned, which I think is really disturbing, is the messages that these girls are getting. For example, you know, try out these constricting binders to, to, you know, kind of figure out your new trans life. I mean, stuff like that. What kind of effect does it have on these young girls? It's very bad because it tends to solidify a young girl in her trans identity. I mean, even if that identity is ultimately not correct. I I spoke to a woman just last week who called me. She very distressed. Her daughter was wearing a binder. And this is what happens. The mother told me the girl was 16 and she felt like she's so upset her daughter's wearing a binder now and, and going by this new name and pronouns, but she didn't feel like, and I said to her, why don't you take it away? And she said to me, oh, I couldn't. I don't want to get on her bad side. And I said to her, would you give her cigarettes? Because binders deform breast tissue, they can crack ribs, they can cause shortness of breath, they are really bad for these girls. But because this whole issue is cloaked in civil rights, a lot of parents have trouble opposing it. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't help when you see stories on the news of parents who are joyfully embracing their new daughter's male identity. I mean, then those parents have extra pressure, don't they, from the media to go along with it. That's exactly right. These parents are very good people. They are literally afraid to lose their jobs. They're afraid if they, if they are caught opposing this with their own daughters when they don't think it's right for them. They're afraid of being shamed on social media, mm-hmm. being fired from their jobs, losing all their friends, losing their reputations in their community as a big, being tarred a bigot. I mean, this is what happens when a parent stops and says, hold on, honey, you've never had gender dysphoria. This doesn't seem right. And your mental health is not improving by this. 
Good grief. Well, in doing all of the interviews that you did, what was the big takeaway for you among, I'm sure, many from the parents, from the parents' perspective that they secretly, I don't want to go along with this. Give me some tips on how to handle this. Is that basically what you found? Yeah. So a few things. Number one, you have to get your kids off social media, whatever you can do. It depends. It's easier if they're younger, but if you can keep them off social media, it's the thing to do. We know social media causes a giant spike in anxiety, depression, and self-harm. It's just not, (laughs) it's just not worth the risk. Um, Number two, oppose gender ideology in the schools. Unfortunately, parents have accepted the school's uh, line, which is that it, it, this is the only way to prevent bullying of transgender students. That's simply untrue. A school can oppose bullying of all students for any reason without indoctrinating an entire student body and gender ideology. And the third thing I would just say is parents need to just remember that they're the parents for a reason <laughs> and their daughters may upset, be upset with this, but they need to stand up for what they think is right for their daughter. If the daughter seems to be suffering and you know, having mental health problems and is not going down a good path, they need to, they need to oppose it. That's great. And, and given that you, you know, your expertise in the law as well as what you're writing about in the book, don't you see or do you see down the line lawsuits are coming? I mean, really, when you have all of this stuff, they're, they're little guinea pigs in a way. Let's give them hormones. Let's do surgeries. Let's see how it all turns out. But in many cases, isn't it possible that these girls will turn on their parents in coming years and say, and say to them, you should have stopped me, mom. That's exactly right. And you know what? I hope I hope there are lawsuits because the medical, unfortunately, medical professional organizations have almost all adopted affirmative care. They have really dropped their obligations to behave like doctors and scientists and instead become cheerleaders. Yeah. And, and frankly, you know, I, I certainly do hope a lot of these cheerleaders are one day held accountable. Do you find when you're looking, you know, doing all of your research on this book in particular, do you find there are a lot of lies that are put forward in order to advance this agenda? In other words, are there things that you would point out to people that if you're hearing this, that's not actually true about this whole transgender movement and it's something you need to communicate to your kids? There are so many lies about this, and there, I mean, it, there are so many. One is the risks of testosterone. We have never put a population of girls on 10 to 40 times the normal dose of testosterone permanently for decades. We've never seen, so they don't know. We know that it elevates all kind of cardiac risks and it, infertility, but the truth is the long-term risks, we don't know. There are tons of risks of puberty blockers and the long-term risk. We don't know. They lie about the fact that you often hear, oh, this is a neutral intervention. Well, there's already indication that not only do we know that if they go from puberty blockers to testosterone, they will be infertile, but they may have permanent sexual dysfunction as well. Mm. There's a lot we don't know. And, and, and one of the biggest lies is just doctors pretending we know more than we do. Yeah. What do you make of the fact that so many politicians are just going along with this entire movement with barely any pushback? I mean, when we're talking about potential for long-term harmful effects on these girls, there should be, shouldn't there, more politicians and more you know, intelligent people figuring this out and saying, hey, wait a minute, what Why aren't there more voices standing up against all this? That's right. I mean, the activists have been very successful in claiming that their rights, you know, their rights as adults 
trump the 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 ability to look into a mental health issue facing teenage girls you can extend as many lgbtq rights as you want throughout the society but that doesn't mean we can't examine a mental health issue facing teenage girls with objectivity and and you know integrity and unfortunately we have failed to do that that's too bad. Well, and, and movements that, in fact, are very political in nature, they, they've also, I know, put pressure on groups like the APA and trying to take, you know, transgenderism in, in various word forms out of the diagnostic manual, things like that, in order to make it seem normal. It seems that's a big part of the problem. I mean, think about this. Gender surgery clinics, so surgical clinics that perform gender operations, now refer to it as gender-affirming surgeries. That's backwards. (laughs) Well, it makes them sound like yoga instructors. They're taking themselves out of the realm of science and into the realm of affirmation. Affirmation was never a surgeon's job. A surgeon was there to to heal and cure. And it's really about time they got back to that. Well, I I totally agree with you. And I think you're right. Long term, if we can get some lawsuits filed and you don't want any filed for the sake of the girls, you just don't want it to happen in the first place. But I think it's so important for people to know what's been going on. Just a fantastic book. It's called Irreversible Damage by our guest, Abigail Schreier. Abigail, thank you for writing this, and it was so great to have you. Thank you again. Thank you. All right. You take care. God bless. We'll be back on Janet Met for today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Years ago, I remember having a disagreement with a coworker over, of all things, an advertisement. The advertisement was for L'Oreal with that famous tagline, because I'm worth it. And my coworker thought that was a great line. I argued that it was selfish and egocentric to talk that way, even if it was just a motto to sell hair coloring. But I guess I lost in the long run because we're now living in an unabashedly self-absorbed culture for whom that tagline actually was perfect. And As my next guest argues, though, a culture that gives people a license to be selfish is actually destroying our nation. From where did this selfishness arise? How has it affected evangelicalism? And what is the remedy for turning this selfish culture around? We're going to tackle it all today with former pastor and college president, Dr. Paul Brownback. He is the author of the book we'll be discussing called Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, great to have you with us. How are you? Thank you, Janet. Great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. You say that this ideology of selfishness has become the predominant element of contemporary American culture. Why do you think that is? What's gone wrong in our culture that we have so much selfishness all around us? Well, it's hard for probably most of your listeners to believe, but uh, Scripture tells us that Satan comes as an angel of light. And so we might expect him to use what sounds to be really, really good to destroy us. 
and he's been doing that. And the, the concept uh, that I write about is one that uh, our secular culture and the evangelical culture has come to embrace. In fact, it is the hallmark of both our secular society and contemporary evangelical society, and that is the concept of unconditional love and acceptance. Mm. Yeah. And uh, that has become the the theme of uh, countless sermons and books and what have you, and people embrace that as gospel truth, and uh, I contend that that is the source of the selfishness that is permeating both secular society and our evangelical churches today. Oh, I think you're spot on about that. Well, let's tackle the secular realm first when you're talking about this problem of unconditional love and acceptance, and you kind of combine it with this self-absorption that we're all kind of swimming in all the time. This goes back, obviously, to the 1960s. We have a lot of this hippie, this love stuff going on in the 1960s, and there's been a long trail to getting here, but what would you highlight have been some of the low points that got secular culture to the point where unconditional love and acceptance is is kind of the bellwether idea that everybody's pointing to all the time. Well, as you suggested, uh, the hippie generation was known as the love generation. And uh, in fact, if we're talking about agape love, it was just the opposite. It was a selfishness generation. And as its hallmark, it had two predominant cliches. The first one is, if it feels good, do it. Yep. And that, that is a tremendously powerful concept because, in essence, what it's doing is it's saying that reason will not be our guide to life. We will no longer be living rationally, but we'll be living subjectively based on our feelings. And, yeah. and that impacts everything. And then they had the other cliche that, that flows out of that, and that is, you have a right to do your own thing. Hmm. And, and what, what's so interesting is how those two connect. If, if feelings is the basis for our perception on reality, I can only feel my feelings. Right. And therefore, on that basis, I'm the only real person. Hmm. Everybody else is merely an object on the monitor of my mind. Right. And uh, because of that, uh, I only need to think of myself. I can, I not only can, but I'm obligated to live totally selfishly because I'm the only real person. Yes. Yeah. And then it kind of morphed over the years, this subjectivism of if it feels good, do it and do your own thing, that kind of self-absorbed mentality. And now you have people saying, it's my truth. They've moved this whole subjectivity over into the realm of objective objective truth that we ought to all recognize as human beings who can see and hear, presumably. And they're saying, I have my truth. You have your truth. I I mean, why has it gone to that level, do you think? Was it just unchecked along the way and people bought into these stair steps of bad ideas bringing us to where we are now? Well, what happened is, first of all, the hippie movement only lasted about five years. And, uh, and the reason for that is, obviously, uh, you can't live according to those concepts. If it feels good, do it, and you have a right to do your own thing. Well, uh, society's going to fall apart, and that's what actually happened out in Haight-Ashbury in, this, in 67 and, and Woodstock in 69 and so forth. It, it, was, it was a total 
degeneration of society. And we saw that up in the in uh, Seattle and their their little community they had up there, and that fell apart in days. Yep. Uh, it it just doesn't work. Well, why would why would rational, intelligent people buy into something like that? And and the answer is uh, the dominant psychologist in in the recent half century in American history is a man by the name of Carl Rogers. Yes, he doesn't have the same recognition as Sigmund Freud, but people who are familiar with psychology, many of them would say he is the most influential person uh, in our society. He's passed away now, but uh, but extremely influential. And uh, what he did is take that hippie philosophy, that hippie ideology, and put it into psychological language. And not only that, because he was a psychologist, because he put it into psychological language, he claimed that if if we lived on that basis, uh, it would actually lead to success. <laughs> and our society believed him. And 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 the core of what he taught was this unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing that anybody would really believe that if you do everything in your own self-interest, that that wouldn't have a rippling effect on the rest of society. We can't live for ourselves. No society can function if everybody, first and foremost, is worried about himself. How in the world would we have all the things that we need in life? Well, again, to understand why people did buy into that, you have to understand the, the theory of Carl Rogers. He he uh, began with the concept of of what he called the self actualizing tendency. He he believed it just like the squirrels and deer have this internal drive to lead them to fulfillment. So human beings have the same thing. Uh, the problem that humans have is they have this blockage. Humans need to experience acceptance by significant others. Right. And um, so if that acceptance is granted conditionally, instead of being guided by the self-actualizing tendency, this internal GPS that he postulated that we all have, uh, we're guided by those conditions of acceptance. Uh, I'll live the way mom and dad want me to live uh, so I can be accepted by them. And from his perspective, that leads to ruin. Wow. But if if we are accepted unconditionally, and we can accept ourselves unconditionally, we can feel good about ourselves regardless of how we live. And as a result of that, uh, that frees us to be guided by our self-actualizing tendency, and uh, that will carry us to becoming, in his terms, fully functioning people or successful. Wow. So... His, his whole deal is that unconditional acceptance uh, is the key to uh, a fulfilling life, is the key to, to optimizing our life. And as a result of, uh, of his theory, unconditional acceptance has become the, the sole uh, morality, the sole moral principle of our society. To accept is always good, not to accept is always bad. And we see this playing out in everything from uh, abortion to the 
transgender movement and and beyond. You're right. Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back discussing the book Licensing Selfishness. Dr. Paul Brownback, my guest, and we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Every day, babies in their mother's wombs are fighting for life, with abortion being the leading cause of death. I already had my mind made up. I was like, I'm going to go through with it. The Ministry of Preborn has pregnancy centers nationwide standing by to help young moms in crisis choose life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the country. By letting a mother see her baby in the womb and hear the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. When I'm sitting there, the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. He's like, it's two. I just start crying. I can't. And sometimes the blessing is doubled. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. And it's great to be joined by Dr. Paul Brownback, author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. We were talking before the break, Dr. Brownback, about the influence of Carl Rogers, this idea that you just need to self-actualize and, and you know, sign on to this unconditional love and acceptance. Now, moving into the evangelical realm, we certainly have inculcated some of those nefarious ideas within the church. Can you talk about some of your concerns, what you're seeing in some areas of evangelicalism that are just mirroring what's going on in the culture? Well, uh, first of all, my concern is that uh, this is extremely widespread and extremely um, um, profoundly held. Uh, We hear a a pastor say something about uh, God accepts you unconditionally. There there are some... um, uh, corollaries to that, you don't have to perform. If God accepts you unconditionally, that means you don't have to perform to be accepted by Him, yeah. meaning I can live however I please, and uh, and He's okay with that, and He's okay with me, and He looks down and smiles at me. And, and they they bring in some 
theological concepts that they believe support that. For example, uh, they uh, they teach that when we're saved, God forgives our sin, past, present, and future. And therefore, uh, when he looks on us, he doesn't see our sin. He just sees the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. Yep. And therefore, how we live does not affect his attitude toward us. Wow. Yeah. You and, can- and then... I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm so sorry. I was going to say you hear that all the time. It's it's antinomianism, is it not? Yes. Well, and the the idea of, uh, again, we, we have to have a performance-free relationship with God, right? Yeah. Non-performance relationship. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, nothing you can do to make God love you less. Very popular expression that, that we hear today. And yes, it is antinomianism. And related to that... Um, one of the the theological perspectives on this is that the the ultimate antagonist is legalism. Legalism is the worst thing that can happen. We understand that if God accepts us unconditionally, then to say that we have to meet some standard in order to please Him is is considered uh, terrible. Yes. So yes. What we have today, though, and, and here's the important point. Uh, in time past, we talked about legalism. Well, we're talking about Christians who who say, well, you shouldn't smoke or you shouldn't drink or you shouldn't go to m- movies or whatever. Uh, today's legalism is different because God accepts us unconditionally. Legalism is any standard that a person must keep in order to please God. Yes. If yes. you say, well, you have to live this way or that way, or you can't cohabit, yes. well, that's legalistic. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, I think right away of Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How can those of us who have died to sin still live in it? And, and you bring up this passage with some of these people who get into this uh, really abuse of God's grace. And they you're right. They really do see anybody who says, but wait a minute, we are called to holiness. Jesus said that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I mean, what about that? Oh, well, but you know, you, there's nothing we can do. We can't sin our way out of our relationship with God. This takes us dangerous places, though. I mean, I think this is really an attitude that has led to a lot of licentiousness. I mean, look at the abortion rate among evangelicals. Look at the acceptance of homosexuality and either even this so-called homosexual marriage. You're seeing some of the approval ratings within professing evangelicalism. It's shocking to me, but it seems like that's that's the connection, isn't it? Yes, it is. And you you can understand how that works. If if God accepts us unconditionally, if, it, if our relationship with him is not affected at all by our performance, then uh, we are free to live however we want. And and that's affected things like church attendance. Yeah. Uh, now they define church, a regular church attender is somebody who shows up twice a month. Wow. And uh, time was that <laughs> a regular church attender was somebody who who came three times a weekend, True. but uh, no more. Yeah. No yeah. more. And, and the, uh, the, the proliferation of pornography. Yes. And, uh, like say, divorce rate, cohabitation. Uh, a, a big one, and this might be offensive to a lot of your listeners, but uh, watching movies with nudity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, yep. and that's okay. Uh, now. I mean, it, it's just uh, widely accepted. And, uh, 
I remember way back when the Playboy magazine first came out, and and uh, only dirty old men uh, would buy that. And, and now here we have Christians looking at nudity in movies, which is even worse. Yeah. yeah. And that's okay. That's how how far our standards have. Uh, have fallen. No, you're totally right. And I say to you listeners, if you're offended by that, be offended because God wants you to be offended. <laughs> because honestly, I mean, it's true. We need to get back to the word of God and what the word of God says about these things, not just what the culture is saying about these things. And and doesn't this also really strike you, Dr. Brownback, that it shows our worldliness, doesn't it? Because really, as Christians, we ought to have that barrier up that when some worldly philosophy is trying to make its way into our churches, we recognize it as and reject it, the fact that that's not happening in greater numbers really shows how worldly we've become. Well, and that gets back to uh, our uh, playing fast and loose with the Word of God. Yes. Uh, we cherry-pick now. And, and you mentioned earlier, if you pointed out certain passages to people, well, they just kind of uh, ignore that. And it's incredible when you stop and think of how many countless passages of Scripture this theory violates, yeah. and yet that, that doesn't seem to bother them. Yeah, right. And that's the tragic thing. I, I challenge people, look, what you need to do is pick up the Word of God and read through it, and read it for the first time. Good. Read it like you've never read it before, and see what it really says. Take off the the cultural glasses and and let it speak for itself and i believe people would be shocked at what they would find hmm. yeah absolutely right that's that's is so important and it's kind of sad that we even need to say it but it's very very true you know when you're looking at the problem of selfishness across society what are some of your thoughts about returning as you talked about earlier to agape love you know and and understanding that america's greatness is not just tied to our founding documents or our freedom or our values and principles Really, those things were byproducts of Christian culture. What are your thoughts on, you know, our repentance and, and you know, restoring things to the way that they ought to be? Well, first of all, the church has to get better. The church has to get healthy. And they have to, they have to purge themselves of this unconditional love and acceptance concept and get back to Scripture. So that's the first thing. When, when you think about the implications of unconditional love and acceptance, it really undermines the authority of God. Yeah. If he accepts us unconditionally, then none of his pronouncements in Scripture have any impact on me, because uh, I'm free from all of that. So we, we need to return to the authority of God, the authority of Scripture, and, and that, should, that should bring us to, to repentance, that should bring us to, again, uh, preaching and teaching about sin, which, of course, if God accepts us unconditionally, there's no, there's no point in uh, talking about sin because it's, it's irrelevant. Yep. Uh, and my dear wife keeps saying, you know, this country just needs repentance, mm-hmm. when, and we do. Yeah. But if God accepts us unconditionally, there's nothing to repent of. Sure. <laughs> and, and so we, we have to get rid of that lie first, and then we have to, then we have to, uh, look at our lives, we have to repent of our sin, and we, we have to return to righteous living. Amen. But then, but then as a church, once our, once our uh, 
strength is renewed. Once we re- regain our vitality by getting back to Scripture and repenting and starting to, to live righteous lives, then as a church, I believe we need to do four things. First of all, we need to have unity. We desperately need unity in the church. And by that, I'm not talking about all worshiping in the same building or whatever. I'm, I'm talking about unifying in our uh, assaulting, our, our fighting the culture war. Yeah. We have to, as long as we're splintered, the left is not worried about us. We're, but, but if we would be unified, we could make a powerful statement. I think of um, uh, social media these days, and they just keep picking off conservatives one at a time, and the cancel culture, same thing. But if we were unified, we would have the power to fight back. Well, that that is really important. And you can read more about it in the book. It's called Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America by Dr. Paul Brownback. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much for your wisdom and for being with us. Really enjoyed your book, and it was great having you here. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Janet, for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. God bless you, Dr. Paul Brownback. Thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today, and we will see you next time. Thank you.